everybody, and welcome to the Lowdown Society podcast. My name is Victor Broden, and I'll be your host. For the past five years or so, I've been writing the on-base column for Premier Guitar Magazine. A lot of the times when I write that column, I am limited to about a thousand words, which is probably five minutes of you guys' reading time. And I've been thinking, I talk to a lot of my best friends and a lot of my childhood bass heroes all the time for the column and just in life in general. And what better way to make these conversations count more and help more people than to make a podcast out of them? So this is something I've been planning to do for a long time. I'm very happy to be here doing the first episode finally. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Mr. Shane Terrio, the musical director for Hall & Oates and Live at Daryl's House, and also the host of Riff Raff, the podcast for guitar and bass and all things musical. He was kind enough to give me some pointers and uh, good advice in general with starting this podcast. I'd also like to thank Mr. Matt Krause, the host of the Working Drummer podcast, who also gave me advice and plenty of help with starting this. Lastly, I'd like to thank Mr. Anthony Rankin, my musical partner in crime, who helped with some fine guitar playing on the little bumpers you'll be hearing throughout the show. My first guest is none other than Mr. Jim Mayer. Jim and I have been friends for many years, and he's been the bass player for Jimmy Buffett and the Coral Reefer Band for many more years than that. For those of you that might not know or that might be listening from outside the United States, Jimmy Buffett is one of the most successful touring acts in America and has been so for many, many years. So we'll be talking to his bass player, Jim Mayer, about holding down that gig for all those years. We'll also talk to Jim about his humble beginnings as a jazz upright bass player in St. Louis, Missouri, and everything in between. I really hope you guys enjoy. Many years without dating you, <laughs> you obviously look like a young whippersnapper. Oh, thanks. How many years have you been on that current gig? Twenty-seven. Twenty-seven. I years. think twenty. It might. This might even be twenty-eight. I joined in eighty-nine, so I guess this is the twenty-eighth uh, year. That's a lot of palm trees, Hawaii shirts, and happy drunk <laughs> and happy drunk boaters. Yeah. When somebody has a, a, a huge gig where they play Fenway Park and stadiums and arenas and on private planes and all that stuff, I think a question that's not really bass related, mm. there'll be many of those uh, that people are interested in, in, is how does one stumble into a gig like that? <laughs> it's a pretty great story, as I recall, if you wouldn't mind sharing that. Absolutely. No, I'd love to, man. And, and uh, thanks for including me on your podcast. You know, it's weird how this stuff happens because if I would have planned it, it probably wouldn't have happened. You know, like I, I never, of course, in fact, I never, you know, uh, thought about it ahead of time. I always, you know, since being a little kid, like like most of us, I wanted to be a, a rock star, or be on stage, or be be on the big stage, or whatever. But basically, the way it the way it worked is, I was uh, I come from St. Louis, Missouri, and. Um, I all my my older brother who also plays with Buffett is like super talented Peter, um, and so him and I work together, and the drummer with Buffett Roger Guth uh, is also from St. Louis. Roger and I have been playing together since we were fifteen. So we the the three of us just kind of like you know like <laughs> three uh, rocks out in space just kind of like gravitationally went together because we, we all had a common interest in jazz and in pop and in a lot of different things. And so we just started making music together, and it actually turned out to get us a, a deal on Warner Brothers Records, and this was in the late 80s, so this was like 87, 88. And it was, man, you know, it's like kind of one of those right time in the right place. Uh, what happened is our producer, who was Elliot Shiner, big shout out to Elliot, we love Elliot, uh, and Elliot Shiner had worked with Steely Dan. And so our, um, basically, our trio was kind of like a, if you put the police and Steely Dan in a blender, it was like a clean, you know, I don't want to say polite, but it was like a clean police, you know. And But it, we loved Steely Dan. And so Elliot, we, we chose Elliot to come on board. And Elliot had just finished the Bruce Hornsby thing, and he had worked with Steely Dan. Uh, and Aretha and stuff. So Elliot was also asked by Jimmy Buffett to produce an album. 
And so Elliot recommended to Jimmy, hey, I've got these three guys from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, and, and that's, I think, one of the things I want to say that I kind of can't help I kind of can't help myself, is that it, it's great to be in big cities, but I'm glad I grew up in St. Louis. And I'm glad, because you, you can really, I think you can make it from anywhere, if what you're, especially these days with the internet. And we'll, we can talk more about that later. But but we had our St. Louis thing going, and Elliot introduced us to Jimmy, and it just so happened at that time, our single was taking off. We were opening for the band Chicago, which we loved opening for them. And uh, they were talking to Buffett's management, which is also their management, HK management, um, about us. And so Jimmy basically heard about us from a couple different sources. And he was going through a period where he was ready to kind of, not necessarily clean up his act, but things had gotten a little bit wild. At least that's kind of the story we were told later. And I, it, whatever the case, he was ready for a change. And he kept hearing about us. And we were just, you know, in our 20s and met him in New York City. And uh, Jimmy is one of the people I've known who is so willing to go with Plan B, man. He's just like, so this is my new band. <laughs> you know, yeah. we, it was really cool. You guys' band on Warner Brothers, your trio, was called PM, right? Just, that is correct, PM. Just in case somebody wants to dive in and, and find that material. And so Jimmy Buffett ended up hiring an original band that was kind of a, if not a super group, you guys were a muso band. You were a pop band with oh, yeah. a, a fair amount of commercial success that were actually really accomplished musicians. Correct. And, yeah. it, and it's, you know, we didn't even know the terms. I mean, sincerely, we didn't know the term studio musician. Back then, we, we kind of had read about Larry Carlton and different people in L.A. who played on a lot of albums, but we didn't really even know that term. But basically, what I hear you saying is we played like, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, like a bunch of different styles of music, which was part of what we had to do in St. Louis. That's part of what I liked about growing up in a smaller town, is that the town isn't big enough for people people to have specialties. I mean, you can have special. It may be big enough now, but back in the 70s when I was coming up in high school, I mean, you, you had to be the jazz bass player and the rock bass player and the country bass player and the, you know, because you just, they just needed a bass player. Um, but, but yeah, we, we were, we were very musical and, and, and very like, we're just, that's kind of the way we're built. We just practiced six hours a day and, uh, you know, so, uh, and by the way, the, the single we had was called Peace of Paradise. I think there's like, some, uh, Strangely can... buffer sounding title. I know, right, right, it is, you're right. And at the time, he was not quite as commercially successful as he is now. No. Correct? Jimmy is building so a worldwide empire. So you didn't think, empire. oh, we just stumbled into the greatest gig in the world at the time, right? You know, it's strange. With Jimmy, we were not huge fans. And I don't say that, I mean, I would say that with him in the room. It's, it's not, it's, we were, you know... <sighs> We loved, we grew up on the Beatles because I was born in India and we used to get the Parlophone 45s. Like, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm you know, I was born in 1961. So, so, you know, as kids, we would get the Beatles Parlophone 45 records of Please Please Me. And you just can't avoid the Beatles uh, at, in that era. And, and then we got into Elton John and then uh, the jazz bug bit me at 15. And so we loved like Elton John, The Police, Steely Dan, lots of jazz. And I, I had heard of Jimmy Buffett, but here's the weird thing is that that actually worked to our advantage because I wasn't in the least bit starstruck. I mean, I'm always going to be professional and respectful, but with Jimmy, I was like hanging with you. And I think that actually, because Jimmy is totally cool. And I think he just wants people to be relaxed. And and when you're at his level, it gets kind of uncomfortable when people are starstruck and like, oh, my God, you know. Course, yeah. um, and so I think it actually worked to our advantage. And it's kind of funny if you listen to any PM, because uh, the first album is just called PM, Peace of Paradise, Moonlight Over Paris, which Vanessa Williams cut. And then there was a, I think, a Portuguese artist who did covered Moonlight Over Paris. Some people thought he wrote it. That's actually our song. He had Anyway, uh, but if you listen to that, or any of those songs, and then listen to Buffett's, the first CD we played on, which is Off to See the Lizard, uh, Roger co-wrote 10 of those songs. And so there's an interesting flavor that sounds a lot like us on that first Buffett record. And, and I think that was just part of what makes Jimmy so cool, is that he's so flexible, and he was really trying some different sounds. Uh, and then after a while, you know, the, the new, what we're doing now with Jimmy is much more just kind of like a new version of, of his roots, you know, which I think really worked out. It's more raw. But it speaks volume about him as a leader uh, to rely on your talent so yeah. heavily so early on because 
nowadays, usually if you hire guys for a tour, you hire a road band, mm. right? And he hired you guys as a road band, and within one year, it sounds like you guys were his studio musicians, and in the drummer's case, his co-writer. Well, and, and in fact, here's what's interesting, is that it's actually the exact... The order is the exact opposite of what you said, which it started as a co-writer. Okay. Roger and what ha I still remember walking into the studio in St. Louis that we were we used to work at Jay Oliver's studio. Jay Oliver's a brilliant piano player that worked on the Hellfreeze Over Eagles thing and worked with Buffett for a while. But Roger and Jay would write together, and there was Roger like you know they, they wrote so much that when they got the call, Elliot said, "Hey, we're cutting with Jimmy. See if you can write some Buffett songs," which everyone wants to do, right? Everyone's like you know handing me CDs like or or sending me MP3s like, "Hey, here's my Buffett song." But Roger somehow really got what Buffett is about because people think Buffett's about the beach and you got to sing about palm trees and and that's but but actually Jimmy's about a lot more than that so I walk in the studio and there's literally like almost every album Jimmy's put out at that point um which would have been mid 80s uh 88 and Roger just sat there and listened and listened and listened and listened and got 10 cuts on the album which is crazy so Roger wrote uh, take Another Road, and, and lots of just incredible songs that Jimmy and him ended up writing together. Then, uh, after hearing our stuff and on Elliot's prompting, Elliot said, let's use these guys in the studio. Let's cut an album. Roger's written all this song. These guys play great. Let's just record a new album. And, and I had no idea. Again, I think it's kind of good. I had no idea what a big deal that was at that time. It was just kind of like, oh, we're just going to record an album in New York. We're going we're gonna to take a train up. We kind of booked a train because we wanted to be old school and just sit there and drink vodka and play cards and just have fun in the train, you know, in the train car and just kind of chill out and made our way up to New York. And Jimmy walked into the studio and he's like, so this is my new band. Let's have boat drinks. So we met in the studio. And then after recording the album, he said, why don't you guys come down to Key West? And so we played back then. There was just one Margaritaville, which was in Key West. And his wife was there and his friends and and. We just jammed, and, and apparently a bunch of his folks were like, you really should hire these guys. And Jimmy has an amazing ability to read people. I mean, this dude, he just, he can walk into any room and just scan the the people, and just, he can, he can read people. I don't know what it is, but he just, and so he's brought so many, like his thing is hire people that you like hanging with and then figure out what they're gonna do. So he'll, you know, he's brought on so many people to his organization that are just, incredible human beings you just want to hang with them and they're really talented too so so at the time we were like sure we'll go on a tour with you <laughs> yeah so. one of the things that always attracted me to your playing was you come from an upright jazz world and when you play electric bass there is very much a muscle and a physical presence not only in your body movements but in your actual hands uh it's a very old school approach in the best way and so somebody that plays that loudly and forcefully has to fit into kind of a not very small but a, a reasonably small frequency and audio mm. band. Would you mind sharing a little bit about how you approach tone and about how your Absolutely. front of house engineer requires you to approach tone in that specific band? Absolutely, and I and I just also want to kind of make a clarification because as with electric bass, with with upright bass, and, and with jazz upright bass, there are a few different school. There are several different schools, but to me, the the, the simple way I divide it is kind of the old school, which is like Paul Chambers, you know, who played with John Coltrane in the '60s. A guy named Tommy Potter who played bass with uh, Charlie Parker, but basically the the same thing that electric players go through, which is the the uh, are you kind of a roots player or are you a chops player? And obviously we don't have to be either or, but there is a tendency towards are you going to do a lot of chops? Or are you just going to be like I just want to be the earth, you know? So I started as a in a, a, a chops guy, and then I kind of got into the simplicity of just lay it down and had some wonderful teachers uh, who kind of encouraged me to like get into the groove of things. And so I didn't really learn about what you're talking about uh, until I, I joined Buffett because prior to that I had played with a trio where you can, A, you can play busier uh, and because it's a little bit, you know, 
I remember talking with Glenn Worf about this. He had some interesting ways that he looks at things. Glenn Worf, uh, Nashville bassist, uh, plays on you know incredible uh, bassist, but but he kind of looks at it as like every song is a is a painting, and then the bass is the frame around it that gives it the context, which I thought is a really cool analogy. But if you use that analogy, there's like exactly what you said. It's a simple equation. Like there's fewer people on that painting. You can take up more space. You can have, you know, you can be more a part of it. And when you've got 12 musicians, it's like finding where is the space for the bass to fit in. And, and, you know, Victor, you actually were a big part of raising my awareness about this, even down to choosing what instruments I play, because I love all the instruments I have. But some of the instruments take, it, it's this, it's totally weird. But But sometimes you want basses that actually sound less big. You know, in a club gig, they're going to sound huge and it's so cool. But like you get into a stadium show and you need the bass to just occupy this little, it's almost like high bass. For me with Buffett, it's more high bass in mid-range. And so you actually were a big uh, person who, who really let me know that. And I think that was a process that I learned over years playing with Buffett that frankly, in the early days with Buffett, I played a lot busier. And and as I keep playing more and more, it really is not only the space that the bass occupies, but the space between the notes and and just understanding that I don't really have to play that much to make it work. You do have a bass rig on stage, but it's a small bass rig mm -hmm. and it's at low volume, but it is very prominent in the mids, right? Yeah, it is. And Just to get technical with how this space actually manifests. It's, so it's speak, really yeah. important, yeah, because different bands are different, and some bands like there to be a lot of stage volume, and Jimmy, and in the group God bless him. is is <laughs> I know no me too I love like loud bass amps I just love them but but with our group to make it work because right in front of my stage position is my brother Peter who plays acoustic and Mac McAnally who is you know both of them are just such a pleasure to work with and so the bass as we know with with you know I mean I say the word physics like I have any idea what physics is but but what i've heard is that bass waves develop over time basically so we, we you play in other words what that means is it's going to be quieter at the amp than it is 30 feet out mm -hmm. it's it's this weird thing that you know stand next to an svt 810 and play and it doesn't sound that loud and you walk out there and it's really loud so on my gig my stage volume is pretty low but what i've what i understand is that the front of house guy we got a mic in front of it, and basically he mixes the mic with my DI, and so it's pretty much a 50-50 mix. And and you know I'm using Mesa Boogie amps, which I was very intentional about because I wanted a more raw, gritty sound. There's not a right or wrong with this gear. I think it's more like colors. I mean, sorry to sound artsy, but it's 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 more like what color? What's my personality? You know, mm -hmm. and so I wanted a more aggressive, raw, but focused and punchy, and um, sound and so my current rig yeah it's it's um you know a combination of a di and then a mic in front of the amp at low stage volume yeah that's yeah. that's nothing that's nothing earth changing no not at all in order to get this mid-range to really speak i forget what you have out there right now is it a 212 or a yeah. 212 it's 212 which frankly on most amps i really don't like the sound um and uh, but with with Buffett and you know it's just a gig specific thing. With Buffett, you need the mid range so much between you know frequency wise, it's like between 200 and 600 hertz, like that kind of. Yeah. You need that that uh, and part of what I like about that is that I love basses where the G like it's the first thing I do on a bass. I play high on the G and then low on the E because I'm always looking for a fat G string and a punchy E string. Yeah, so, that's that's the, uh, that's the that's that's the religion of trying instruments. Totally. I, I mean, that's the one thing I obsess over. I would rather play a 200 R bass that doesn't maybe sustain as well or, or speak as well. But if, if I, I feel your fellow bandmates and your front of house guy, if you play a bass line, not a solo, but mm -hmm. a bass line that has a G string, you know, anytime you play a disco bass line or octaves, you're going to have a lot of notes on the G string. Yes. And if those notes don't have warmth to them, mm -hmm. people will feel like you're not supporting them. Well, which is really your only job unless you're soloing. So it's interesting totally. to hear to hear somebody else put it in, in that way, where I'm looking for a fat G string 
and a punchy e-string. Well, and, and also, you know, I've and been... That's oh. a fantastic piece of advice, I feel like, so... Well, it is, and I think to take it a step further, I've been listening a lot lately to uh, early 70s Elton John with Dee Murray on bass, and... and uh, I'm remembering, you know, uh, growing up in the 70s when, you know, you, you would have the high school you go to has a basement 100, like that's the bass amp. And so growing up in that era, you get used to, if anyone has the opportunity to plug into an old Fender basement 100, uh, it's just like, you know, it's so much, there's so much bass that any note you play on the instrument is like, you know, it's just this huge, fat frickin' note you know and and sometimes i miss that with the new technology of the amps and and i love amps that are being made now but i think sometimes we miss and if you listen to those old 70s recordings i mean the high notes on the bass mccartney mm -hmm. is another great example of that and i love that these big fat tubby high notes you know yeah. are just it's just fun man which that's something that that i feel like 60s and 70s bass like you're talking about and especially the amps from that era make electric bass kind of even playing field with a great upright yes the tubbiness yes. of the high notes what was the records that made you mm. flip that switch where you're listening to records with your brother in your case because mm -hmm. i know you guys were, were were growing up together playing you listen to records and you're not even a teenager probably you're probably still a child right and you hear this low sound and you decide well, I don't want the, the lead singer thing, or I don't want to be up front playing solos. I, I want that murky shit. Right. What, what, decide, what made you decide that? <laughs> that, to me, is the int most interesting question for, for any of my friends that play bass. No, I, I, I hear you. Well, well first of all, I, I want to say that one of the things I feel really fortunate about is that I grew up in a family that loved music. My dad, my dad was actually a preacher, but but he he wanted to be like a concert pianist. So so whatever the case, he totally appreciated and supported music. And so we would literally, and back then, I think it's something we've kind of you know, I think in a, in a way we've kind of lost maybe a little bit. But back then, I remember. Um, uh, that we would literally sit around the table and just listen to a record. Like, it's 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 hard to imagine... Intentionally listen. Like, like, you're not doing anything else. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine, okay, picture, there's no smartphone, there's no cable TV. All you've got is NBC, CBS, and ABC, and maybe PBS. And, and, and so the TV is pretty boring, and there's some local radio station, there's no internet, there's no computers, and so you just put on a vinyl record, and you sit around the table, and you just don't talk, and you just listen. And we would do this with my family, my brother Peter, me, and my brother Ted, who who is has musical gifts, but he's he does other things. And we would just sit and listen. And so we would listen to Stevie Wonder, we would listen to Cat Stevens. We we the Beatles are just absolutely foundational for me on on all phases of my career. But but so it started with a love of music. Then my brother was just ridiculously talented at a young age on guitar. And there was a kid down the street who played guitar. And it's funny how the child's mind thinks because I was like 12 and I just thought, well, we've already got two guitarists. We don't need a third guitarist, you know? That's not a child's mind, that's logic, <laughs> That's right? logic, you're right, right. it is. It's, yeah. You're right, it's logic. Like, the last thing we need is a third guitar. And my brother was starting to jam with a guy, and, and it's ironic that I have sitting right here a, a Gibson EBO, and this guy my brother was jamming with had this Gibson EBO, which I just thought was the coolest thing on the planet, and like a little Fender combo amp. And I loved the thick strings, and then I went and saw the symphony and saw the big stand-up players and I was like the big uh, upright bass players and I was like those are amazing so I just I just thought it was so freaking cool yeah. you know it's interesting because you know I grew up in Sweden and I grew up in a small town of 30,000 mm. but I was in literally thrash metal bands and bossa nova latin trios I was like not the only guy in town but the only guy in town who would come out for anything yeah <laughs> and any amount of money or no money I guess growing up and you just called St. Louis a small town right. which for somebody like me from a European country is kind of fun and ridiculous right you're, it is you're it's right it's really scale. not a small town yeah, yeah. yeah. but you mentioned <laughs> uh, playing 
every genre and, and every situation. What was the music scene like in the in the in yeah. the? I guess it would be late seventies when you started gigging out. Before you weren't of drinking age yet, but you were probably gigging out. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. I gigged a lot when, when. Well, the bug bit me when I was twelve, and and my brother uh, played, you know, in a wedding band, and and he's a couple years older than I am, and he actually helped buy my first bass. So by the time I was thirteen, before I play, had bass, I had a guitar, and and I actually. Yeah, 12 or 13. I love David Bowie. I love Deep Purple um, and the band Yes and just, you know, all, all a whole mix of things. But it, part of what I loved about that that time in St. Louis is that it was all about the love of the music. It wasn't about we didn't know anything about business. <laughs> and that, you know, may have, you know, hurt us uh, later, but but it just didn't matter. We we just we just had to play. You, you had to play. So we would get together with uh, other college friends or other people, you know, so now we're talking like I'm 15, I'm 16, I'm 17. And and there's people around, uh, lots of incredible musicians in St. Louis, a guitarist named Tom Byrne I used to work with a lot back then, um, and a beautiful singer who passed on, Joan Buis. But But the big deal is that we would get together and just jam and just literally have jam sessions like three or four times a week where it, like that's your day you get up and have breakfast and then go jam and just play charts and talk and then go get lunch and then go jam some more um and so the scene in st louis was actually in pretty surprisingly vibrant back then there were uh, like jazz clubs where you would, a uh, place called Major Bowes downtown uh, St. Louis. There was a sax player named Jim Getch. Uh, he used to drive me to the gigs when I was 15. And I had, you know, uh, just, I, I actually had played a lot of chops. I had a lot of technique back then. And so I would do uh, jazz gigs. And then later I started doing more wedding, kind of just wedding gigs. But, but the thing to me, my whole thing about it's hilarious when I'm on a wedding gig because I play like I'm at Shea Stadium. You know, and people are looking at me like, what is this guy doing? Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I can't not commit. I just can't. So so to me, you know, I almost have this like, you know, sacred oath to the music. Like I have to honor whatever music I'm playing. And so if I'm playing, you know, Heard It to the Grapevine, which is probably the most overplayed song at a wedding, um, I just I, and a I strange can't. a strange subject matter for weddings too, right? <laughs> right. I heard you're cheating on me. Right. Let's play this shit at our wedding. <laughs> one one wedding we played. This guy literally the, the 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 first dance was literally for all the girls I've loved before. <laughs> I'm There's mad. I could talk for thirty minutes about crazy wedding stories, but but um, <laughs> but to me the whole thing was commitment to the music, and so um. We just, man, we just gigged like all the time. And so I had senior year in high school, I had two five night a week gigs. I had a cocktail hour from mon a Monday through Friday from 5 to 8 p.m. And then I would drive over to the east side, over to Illinois, play with my buddy Rick Hayden and uh, Larry Vanderveer. Um, and we would play, you know, it was, it's funny because we would have a gig, it sounds terrible, like at the Holiday Inn Lounge. But back in the 70s, you could play Pat Martino. I mean, you know, like Google Pat Martino. The guy's, I mean, he's just crazy genius on jazz guitar. You could play Pat Martino, Joyous Lake, <laughs> and Chick Corea songs so, at so a Holiday no, Inn. No, no pun intended, really, but nobody was screaming Margarita at <laughs> the Holiday Inn, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I don't, I don't know how the hell we got away with it. And we would get in, in the pay. I remember very well back then. The pay was always fifty bucks a gig. Like whatever you, you just oh, show it's up. It's still the same. It's still the same, right? And that's like forty years ago. Yeah, nobody cares about inflation. No, no, exactly. It's fifty bucks a gig. And so I had a cocktail hour uh, Monday through Friday, and then I would go over to the East Side, play Tuesday through Saturday, and sleep during my classes. <laughs> Well, you were, in high school. You were basically a full-time working musician at 18 years old. Correct. Yeah. Because, yeah. again, year. if you yeah. do two $50 gigs five days a week with, with what money was back then in the 70s, you were kicking ass and I taking names in your hometown. It was pretty weird, yeah. I was making more than my high school teachers, which was kind of strange. But, but back then, which one of them pointed out, you know, I later told them what I was doing, and they were like, jeez, you were making more than I was, dude. But um, th there was definitely more commerce and more freedom back then, I, I think. I mean, it just felt, it felt very free. Um, yeah, 
yeah, it just felt very free to play play jazz and stuff. As many Europeans obsessed with vintage American music culture and and how we like to think about the voodoo of, of the the river and how St. Louis is one of the oh, cities yeah. on the river. What those cities have in common, I guess, you talk about Memphis, St. Louis, and New Orleans, they're not really fluent cities. There's a fair amount of struggle present in those cities Dude. that produce great music and there's yeah but but for those of us that like the more romantic version there's something in the water and and st louis is one of those cities you hear about growing up in europe with the jazz clubs and oh it's one of those american cities on the river where the music flows it's true know? yeah and so you growing up in one of those cities to me is interesting and i feel like st louis uh it's slightly more rare to hear than guys that are from Memphis and New Orleans, which keep producing great oh, yeah. players. Oh, it's, yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is, is, is uh, we, <laughs> I didn't even know this as a kid growing up, but, but my brother and I grew up like literally less than a mile from Route 66. I mean, yeah. it's literally Watson Road is Route 66. And that was like what, you know, literally was right next to our house. Um, and I think there's truth in what you're saying. You know, Miles Davis came from St. Louis, Gladys Knight, uh, back in the, you know, that was obviously pre my era. But what, the way that that played out for me or the way that translated to me, and I, I actually can't find a word for it. Um, it's somewhere between commitment and desperation that there's this thing where there's nothing else but the music. And that, I think, is, is a game changer when you're playing because what I listen to when I hear bands is I listen for honesty. I listen for what are you really bringing to it? You know, like, is this you or, and it's okay. You know, I know we all have those times where we dial it in, but, but what, what can you find in that song that just literally goes all the way down to your bones? And that's when it makes it fun to play because it's about something more than the music. And, and, you know, that's what I loved about the blues. I, I couldn't find language for it when I first heard Miles Davis kind of blue, but there was a loneliness that was in that music that it sounds weird, but I just loved it. I was like, holy crap, this is like, this is huge. You know, this is not just a cool song. This is like, he, he's like painting something bigger than that. And I don't know if that's what you're talking about, but I think when you live in that culture, and there is something with playing gigs right on the river, it's just uh, you kind of don't know where that river is going to take you. And that's that point of surrender where you just like, I'm not sure what's going to happen with this music, but it's going to be something more than, you know, me. <laughs> so that's yeah. a good thing. <laughs> Obviously, I, I wanted folks to hear how you got the Buffett gig, how you approach your tone there and all that stuff. But also, uh, you obviously play music with other people. Yes, right, right. <laughs> Revolutionary idea. So <laughs> what we've touched on already and what you do with Buffett is your brother, Peter Mayer, who, for people who don't know, I guess this would be a plug, but he makes the most beautiful pure music that sounds it comes from a place of completely non-ego usually mm. people that are eager to show off uh, how many chords they know which certainly there's a tremendous uh, richness and harmony and, and rhythm on Peter's records it's it's definitely not your beginner punk rock records right but his records and his guitar playing comes from a, such a deeply unselfish place in my opinion and, and the first time you played me your brother's music, which you are part of playing bass on, uh, I was just blown away. Mm. Uh, Thank you, man. Well, for example, he is known as a guitar player who puts out records. And I listened to one of his solo records. I can't rem I think it might have been Music Box. I can't remember. Um, but the first guitar solo was in song number eight. <laughs> yeah, so, right. so, so everyone check out Peter Mayer, and especially maybe if you if you if you want to just relax. I'm not saying this is easy listening elevator music, but it's beautifully relaxing music. And I used to call you up. I remember when I first got hip to your brother's music, featuring you, saying, 
I use this record to go to sleep. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I was initially insulted by, but then I got it. Yeah. Because it's like, Oh, yeah. you know how it is. I'm no, I get crazy it. musicians trying to shut off our minds, you know? Totally. Absolutely. So if you wouldn't mind just talking a little bit about yeah. uh, your brother's project and your bass playing yeah. there. I'd love to. Well, well, Peter and I, it's... it's uh, it's it's funny because you know we're beyond brothers in in our closeness and and it's funny how working with your brother in a band and working with him professionally but it was a blast growing up with him because we're we're actually really both like competitive like it's funny because between the two of us you know and that's probably normal for brothers but uh you know I kind of got the practice thing Peter has just got ridiculous I and mean, we, we each have our natural talents but i mean i remember you know peter used to sit upstairs at when he was 12 and he would be singing like a a beatles song um like yesterday or or playing uh you know blackbird or or whatever it was and and you know of course i was a kid back then but i remember being downstairs and i actually wasn't sure if it was a record or not like that's how good he sounded at 12, which is pretty stupid, you know? And I would be kind of, I mean, he just sings great. And so um, I was the one who got bit by the practice bug of the regimen of you just sit and you just freaking practice for three hours, four hours a night. And so Pete was, you know, I started getting really good at bass because that's what happens when you practice three to four hours a night. And, and so, we had this whole thing where we would go up to Perkins Pancake House and have coffee, like just ridiculous amounts of coffee, like seven cups of coffee, totally unhealthy. <laughs> and then we would go home and practice and Peter would not go to bed until he heard me going to bed. So we would be, That's the, amazing. Like, he could hear my footsteps upstairs and then he'd be like, okay, Jim's calling it. I'm going to call it too. And so we were very competitive with each other. And then we started working together professionally. Um, and, um, it's what I love about playing with Peter and we have in, in Jimmy's fans uh, who are called Parrotheads, which I just think is a great name. Um, they have been incredibly supportive of Peter and really welcomed him with open arms. And, um, and so a lot of the different gigs I play with Peter, whether they're for Parrotheads or just at, at other things. And, and Peter does uh, some church things too, a Christmas thing and, and, does some other church music sometimes, which is different than his, you know, playing out in clubs music. What I love about playing with Pete is it's 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 very freeing from the normal lay down concrete bass role. Like you really get to, I really get to just explore and he's not in the least bit thrown off because he's so secure in what he's doing that I can really, uh, you know, like not, it's not about playing busy, but you can just, the bass can kind of start uh, painting in some other areas, you know, which is just, it's just a freaking blast, you know, yeah. very free, very free. I've known you. I'm trying to think of other gigs I've heard you on. J.D. Souther, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was an incredible... Who was the writer of a few great oh, songs? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Best of My Love. I'm yeah. pretty sure, and I, I hope I'm not wrong about that. I might be. Um, but but he was with the Eagles, and and J.D. Souther is, is in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and and just an incredible... Uh, incredible artist and so i met jd i believe through chris walters and through jeff coffin sax player with uh originally bela fleck and now with dave matthews and jeff is a dear friend of mine uh and and that's what's incredible about nashville is like you just you know that these are folks in sitting here with you and just you know but um but playing with <laughs> jd i remember that studio session because i uh i played on his uh his album uh the, if the world was you and Bela Fleck was on that album. Jeff was on that. Uh, Jeff Coffin, Chris Walters. Um, but you know, we all have areas that we you know really 
own and do, and then we all have areas that are really not our strengths. One of the areas that's not really my strengths is like bluegrass slapping bass, or not, you know, rockabilly, I'm sorry, rockabilly. Not, blue, yeah, sure. not bluegrass, uh, rockabilly slapping, you know, just a really, and I saw a guy the other day here in Nashville that just, and, and I should have gotten his name, just in a, playing in a club, just completely blew me out of the water. I mean, the guy sounded like two drummers. That's not what I do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so JD had this track where like you got to play like super fast, like you know, with the, with the sixteenth notes between the thing, and my, my right arm was like ready to fall off. And I pr I practiced for like you know I'm very methodical, so like a week before the session. But I'm playing in the studio in Bela Flex, sitting about ten feet or. 15 feet away from me, just we're facing each other, you know, with gobos and mics between us. And I'm just trying to play, and he just looked at me and said, just relax, man. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, man. I'm, I'm trying to relax, Bela. <laughs> just, you know. But uh, I also got to play on... Um, with, with Little Feet, which is which was in really on their album, um, on uh, See You Later, Alligator, and that was a uh, Mac McAnally Mac McAnally helped connect that, and and um, also with Livingston Taylor, that's that's uh, uh, James Taylor's brother, and th that was a real honor to play on those things because it gave me a chance to kind of dig into the upright. You're a coral reefer for going on 28 years. Obviously, people are going to know you as that, but, but you being the player you are, it, it's wonderful. I think especially any of the maybe parrot heads that might be mm -hmm. listening to, to know what else there is beneath your uh, happy dance on, on the stage. <laughs> yeah, because somebody asked me once, like, you know, because Margaritaville's this huge hit, and they're like, what's the bass line? And I was like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> you know, it's just well, a straight, you know. I've heard you play it, and yeah. here's the thing. It's basically a country route five line. Yeah. But, you know, you play it like an upright guy digging into a, a fast bebop song, <laughs> but with two notes. Right. You know, like, you play it like you. And... uh I don't want to put you on the spot. Yeah, we but, should. Yeah, we but should play. But all the amazing stuff you can play on a bass guitar. Yeah. I feel like uh, hearing Jimmy Buffett's bass player play Margaritaville is a good place to start. <laughs> okay. Would you mind? I wouldn't mind at all. That's the intro. are low so I'm used to like because I'm in my mid-40s myself now, and, you know, I, I grew up like any hot-headed young guy yeah. with chops bass. But I love listening to actual bass playing. Wow. You know? Yeah. And the little drop you had there, the... Yeah, right. It sounds like an upright guy. Like, I'm going to drop this... <laughs> it's not quite a bucket of fish, but you're... Right. you're <laughs> and and like you said in the middle of playing that song, I handed you my bass, which is unfair in a room where we're sitting surrounded by your basses. No, it's cool. Uh, that's how you play actual bass guitar. <laughs> well, thank you, brother. No, I'm honored by that. And you know, it's one of the things I wanted to say about that is is one of the things that I love about coming up on upright. And and it's it's kind of going back to what we said about those '60s and '70s bass amps, is that. Upright teaches you the weight of the bass, that when you hit a note, it's just like, you, you can't help but feel it in your rib cage and shaking your bones, that the bass has weight. And I think one of the things that I see players coming, when they're coming in and kind of learning how to play bass is, is when you sit alone in your practice room, you don't have a sense of the weight of the bass. And when you're playing a stadium, 
and you hit a low note and you hear <laughs> a low E go out over the subs in a stadium, you get the sense that what you're really doing is sending out these massive shock waves that are like 50 feet wide, like huge balloons or bubbles from the, the stage or whatever, however you want to visualize it. There's this huge weight that you have as the bassist. And so to me, what I love about playing grooves is you're like sculpting flow. You're sculpting, you get this sense that, that I think it's, to me, I didn't get it sitting in my practice room because when you're practice room, you want to go fast, which, you know, I, I can go fast, but but that's not what playing bass is actually about. You know, it's about sculpting the groove and having this weight that's just, you know, like, like you can't hear it on the mic, but, but getting like a sense of, you know, um, I'm trying to come up with some example, you know. Like to me, it's so much about like, what is your body doing? You know, so much I wanted to chat about, about just mental imagery. And we were talking about how grooving didn't come naturally to us, Oh yeah. which I love, like, sorry for the cliche, but like two white guys trying to groove. And it's like, how do oh, you yeah. get to that point where you get a pocket, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Now that we've actually talked about playing and serious business and, and musical influences, one thing that you and me have in common that I've always just completely, like you said, I, you know, you move on stage, you like to lose yourself physically in the music, mm. just not emotionally. Yeah, right. And this might be, uh, you're sitting here with a knee brace, cause, and, I, <laughs> and uh, you got it from dancing at That's a party. Right. <laughs> so I call it a party injury. But you say it's probably because of the... the the way you stand on one leg on stage and the way you move on stage and i have always been which is weird because bass guitar is is normally a supportive role so you get these guys who are very supportive and don't have an ego and don't want to show off but i'm all about basic uh, foundational bass playing that right. don't call attention to itself yeah but when i'm on stage or when you're on stage even if you're playing don't attract any attention at all yeah your persona does mm. and I think you and I have probably both been lucky to work with artists who will allow us to act a fool because we can't help it. Yeah, no, and, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> the key is know, we can't help it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like involuntary. No, yeah, but yeah, but you yeah. can't shut it off, so don't hire me if you don't like the, the foolishness that happens to my limbs. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but I have a tremendous respect for people who are serious musicians and also want to be serious entertainers, and mm. the one doesn't take away from the other. Right, right. And I think you look at a guy like Verdi White from mm. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, he's going to have the choreo down. Right. And in, in the modern the modern version of that, and I give this guy shout-outs all the time, is a, a young guy, I think he's still in his 20s, uh, Jamario Artis, who plays bass for Bruno Mars. Oh, man. And the guy's playing is, I hope to get him on this show, obviously, uh, the guy's playing while performing choreo that is not at all easy even without a bass in your hands yeah it blows me away wow more so than most people's actual playing right his ability and and he is the next generation verding white but even though you and i are again white guys who might not pull off the choreo um watching you on stage with a buffett band it, you are definitely the center point. The, the party is definitely happening on the little bass throne. Well, exactly. And, and, and so, it, I, and I also, <laughs> again, I don't, coming from a more of a rock and roll background, I don't want to have any kind of preconceived notions about jazz, but come, most guys that come from a jazz background, they channel all their, which is beautiful, they channel all their energy into the instrument. But you were always like, a jazz guy that partied like a rocker on stage. First of all, I, I think, you know, and it, it is, you know, it's kind of the cliche of the white guy or the, the and, 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 you know, we're joking about that. But I just, I think, you know, obviously, and I probably don't even need to say this, that, that 
we we all go beyond our bounds, and that's really. And, and I, I heard a wonderful thing at NPR where they were interviewing different rappers and different people, and and people of all the races were saying, "It's really cool how music has come to a place where we're kind of all in it together and just doing different stuff, and we own our territory." And and that's when it gets really good is when we go beyond our you know our the identity on the outside. Um, but but very much it's it's very much an involuntary uh, thing the way we move and and I do think there's different philosophies with with how you play like there can be kind of the like to me it's not about calling attention to myself cuz that's that that you know I mean um to you know cuz I know there's a very much a philosophy of of just lay it down and be invisible that if anyone actually hears the bass then you're you're not doing your job because Absolutely. you know and 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 I respect that philosophy and and I can do that where you just want to be the breeze or you just want to be the road underneath the car uh, without the road the can't the car can't drive I I love that way of playing too but I love what you said that for me it's like there's just different approaches, and I and I'm pretty transparent with people that I'm flexible. That if if they're like, hey, dude, like I don't need a jet engine on the back of this groove, I you know, <laughs> because the bass has a lot of power in terms of how to shape the groove and shape the experience of the song, and uh, and I just I, I I'm chilled out about it. I'm like, man, listen, if you want me to just be invisible, I can be invisible. You know, I'll do my best. You know, But like you said, it's so freaking fun to get into the pool and splash around, you know, and just play. Well, I, I feel like, again, you're really one of the greatest entertaining bass players because your moves are, and take this the right way, they're not they're not the cool moves. They are just what happens to you. And I just love that. Right. I do. Right. I do. Yeah, they're definitely and not I, choreographed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whether you're playing jazz in a club or, mm -hmm. like in my case, coming up, I played a lot of uh, top 40 bands and, you know, top 40 funk R&B, top 40 country. Oh, yeah. And your job is to make people dance. If people dance, you know, so Boom. here's the thing, like, we grow up basically getting people to shake their asses. <laughs> That's right? right. And then people are like, well, you're the bass player, so why are you moving? I'm like, well, if I don't make me shake my ass, yeah. or whatever, I, you know, is there. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't make myself feel like that, how am I supposed to make other people just feel like that? So I, yeah. I you know, so basically all this r rambling about uh, stage presence and entertaining and playing simple bass but 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 still being an entertainer i encourage everyone to see a buffett show for several reasons we'll get we'll get into a few more non-bass related reasons cool but, yeah but uh but especially to to just see how much you enjoy those yeah. songs that you've played a thousand times Absolutely. and how your your passion and your party spirit is still there a huge superstar and of course everyone would like to meet him or get a picture taken or there's meet and greets like there's on all tours but there's a story that that every time you tell it I just can't handle it uh, about a woman uh, getting passed out drunk in the front row <laughs> and getting a personal performance and I'm sure to this day um, she's mad at herself and so being behind this guy for 28 years, you see a lot of fun oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. No, it's it's unbelievable. <laughs> if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing some, some of that aspect of you being on a gig that's not an uh, introvert fusion gig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, um, yeah, micro geek gig. Um, you know, uh, Jimmy is a master entertainer, and, and the way I look at, at his approach to entertaining is it's almost like the audience is his instrument. Like that's literally he's, and I don't mean like he's playing the audience, but he, that dude can, can shape energy in a room. Like, like, I, I don't know that I've ever seen it. And we were playing up in Michigan at a, uh, outside of De De Detroit, a venue called Pine Knob outdoor shed, 
in the summer, of course. And in some of these venues, the stage is like really high. It's like, you know, eight or 10 feet up or whatever. It's, you know, you need stairs to get there. And other stages are pretty low and, you know, they're, they're set up different. Where there might be a couple stairs you can get down there. And so some people on the Buffett gigs, you know, he, he tells people like straight out, pace yourself, pace yourself. Pay, I mean, he just keeps saying it, pace yourself. Well, a lot of people... They don't pace themselves, <laughs> and so they they peak too early. He's like, don't peak too early, you know. Well, some people peak too early, and we were playing Pine Knob years ago, and we couldn't help but notice a woman in, in the front row, who knows how much she paid for the seats, uh, absolutely passed out. I mean, just completely like you know, slobbering, just just literally like probably snoring, uh, with her head leaning to one side. Um, and we just kept playing and she was just passed out. And so finally, when it came time to sing, let's get drunk and screw, Jimmy walked down there and they videotaped him and put him up on, I'm sure there was a video of it somewhere. They put him up on the big screens of him putting his arm around her and singing, let's get drunk and screw to her while she was just absolutely unconscious, basically. And, uh, <laughs> It was, I mean, you know, it was, it, he took it right up to the border, but it, it man, it was pretty unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about seizing an opportunity. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's what band leaders do. Is that's they right. They the crowd and they, they change the, sh the show. That's an old school skill that... Totally. Yeah, Jimmy kind of comes out of the, uh, kind of the, the old school, you know, like it's like a carnival. It's like, it's all, you know, it's, it's, I mean, if you, you like picture like sixties or even fifties, you know, you go to a carnival and everyone has their booth and everyone has their, you know, you got the preacher at the carnival and you got the guy selling the, you know, whatever you're, you're shooting the ducks and what everyone's got their booth at the carnival. And I think he, you know, maybe there's a part of him that still looks at it that way, that it's kind of like, Hey, this is what I do. And I'm going to fricking you know, do what I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's his booth, you know. Do you smell that? Yeah, man, what is that about? Well, I don't know, but it sure stinks. Did you do something? No, I did not. I thought you did. Something just went from funky to skunky. We got a bonafide skunk alert, man. Driving out to Colorado. Take my brothers wherever I go. What about the sisters? Come along, halfway across Oklahoma. We picked up a strange aroma. Is that the sewage plant we just passed? Whatever it is, start driving past. We're kicking it into overdrive. Keep going quicker. Can't shake the stank trying to get out alive. Stank in the road. The thing that you normally uh, are used to talking about, mm. your passion slash main focus in life when you're not playing Margaritaville, uh, which is you do children's music. Mm -hmm. And uh, Uncle Jim, and that's how you're stored in probably my phone. And a lot of your friends is there's there's really no separation between the kids' character and uh, the grown professional that we know and love. <laughs> and uh, of course, one of the the records that Uncle Jim has made uh, as a kids' entertainer and also a bass player is called Funky as a Diaper. And, uh, <laughs> this is really all you need to know about how cool this is. But I know we could spend another hour talking about your children's music, but obviously that you play bass and more instruments on those records. But how you approach making children's music with the same intent and responsibility as you would if you were playing jazz with the Brecker Brothers or if mm -hmm. you're playing rock with Bruce Springsteen. Absolutely. Or, you know, oh, yeah. Or, or beach pop country folk with Jimmy Buffett, you are approaching your own kids' music as something that needs to be on a uh, world level. Oh. Give, us, uh, give, us your, give us your thoughts about, about this thing that takes over your life when you're not touring. Yeah, it's well. It's funny how it developed because it it came. Uh, you know, I, I moved to Nashville in in uh, 1998, and like many people who moved to Nashville, I thought, well, I'll just write 
you know, a couple country hits. No problem, right? <laughs> that should be easy, uh, which, of course, was a ridiculous thought. Um, and and I, I, I obviously didn't think of it that simply, but I thought, you know, I'm going to write some songs, get some cuts, do some studio work. And uh, and it turns out that, you know, there are people here that, that live and breathe and eat it for, you know, breakfast and do it on a level that's, that's truly world-class. And so I kept getting the the response that a lot of songwriters get, which is, you know, right, that really sounds cool. What else do you have? You know, yeah. which is like, like really confusing. Like what, like, you know, no real feedback, just, you know, nobody wants to uh, actually have an opinion about it. So they just say, you know, it sounds good. What else do you have? Um, and so meanwhile, I was writing these like silly kid songs or, or fun kid songs, schmoopy, um, which of course is a Seinfeld reference, but, but, uh, and I wrote funky as a diaper, um, after a family reunion where my sister, bless her heart, drove over my gas grill, uh, my brother-in-law broke a chair. <laughs> it was just like the family drove off and I love them all dearly. But it was like, you know, I was just went back in the house and I wrote Funky as a Diaper, which is about being a, you know, growing up as a child in a, in a big family. And, and it's exactly what you were saying and what we were talking about, the, about the wedding gig is part of it is like just follow your passion and, and sorry it sounds completely cliched but it's like it's it really is what what has worked for me and that's just like what do i love about what i'm doing and then how can i grow what i'm loved so i just i i love this idea of a, a spoof rap song about a baby rapping called funky as a diaper and i had nadira shakur sing the lead part uh with the buffett band she used to be with the rest of development um, she sang incredibly and and i just literally gave the cd to a friend at XM Radio, which is now Sirius Radio, and they put it up on the kids' channel. Like, just, yeah, sure, let's, and, and I got an e email about six weeks later that said, your your song's in heavy rotation, the kids are freaking out. And, uh, you know, a few months later, I, I had a number one hit, and there's this hilarious chart that I have where Funky as a Diaper is number one, <laughs> and then there's Paul McCartney with a kid's song is like number five, and I met Paul. I have absolute nothing but respect and love for Paul. What an incredible gentleman, but it was so ironic, you know, that like after all these years of like worshiping Paul, you know, Funky as a Diaper is at number one. It was just, it was just so freaking funny. Um, and uh, and I hired you know just the the best Nashville musicians I could find um, to play on the sessions uh, to really because that's what makes it fun is doing it right like I to me cutting corners is just not fun it's like what's fun about that you know <laughs> uh, right now you are working on implementing your kids music in school programs nationwide yes right? correct yeah so what what happened with the school thing is is that uh, I um, found out, literally was was kind of surprised to find out that A, I loved writing kids' music, and it wasn't just, oh, I'm just going to do something to do it. It was like this completely coming from, uh, you know, just, I, it's like almost like I had to do it. And I was going to do it whether I recorded it or not, so I'm like, I might as well record it. And I loved doing it, and then I started traveling around to schools because a teacher friend said, you know, Jim, Pe this was back in 2007, 2006, 7, and 2008, um, they back then they were like you know entertainers actually go to schools and they actually play and we have assemblies and I'm like really and they actually get paid for it you know and so I started touring schools and every school I went to the kids were just locked on me they were just like totally inspired by Uncle Jim with these Uncle Jim posters and and like you know you rock Uncle Jim and I'm like what is going on here and um, and so I asked the teachers my my philosophy was real simple. The kids are paying attention to me, and why don't we work on the same team? Uh, I asked the teachers, what do you want me to tell the kids? Like, how can I help what you're doing? Because they're paying attention to me, and I have a feeling they're going to listen to whatever I say. And almost every teacher said we need help with aggression, bullying, teamwork, whatever you want to call it. Kids are just not playing well together these days, and we see that happening a lot. Can you help with that? And so I started putting together what seemed kind of um, like common sense, but just seemed like basic principles of what I've noticed. Playing in bands, it came very much from the musical place. 
of of kind of this balance of we all have freedoms, we all have strengths and weaknesses. You know, Miles Davis used to say, you know, part of what makes him great is that he knows what he can't do. So he, he couldn't play high like Dizzy Gillespie, so he would play low and work with his weaknesses to make him work. You know, we're all learning, we're all valuable, we all have a purpose, we all have power, and, and then ultimately we're all interconnected. I came up with these seven principles that just seem to make sense for community building and and built a program with my wonderful co-author. That was bizarre meeting her. Ellen Booth Church had worked with. She helped develop Clifford the Big Red Dog. And, and so it's just weird how things click and you meet somebody and, and I ran into her actually through a friend. Um, and so we have developed this teaching program that's based on really fun songs. And our whole approach is to see the world through the eyes of a child. Like that's the whole approach is like, what, how does the child experience this? And, and let's look at it from their window. And um, the schools we're using it in absolutely love it. And, and the whole idea is like, let's just be on the same team and build a community, you know. Um, and I've got some wonderful business people helping me develop it into a subscription-based, web-based, you know, national program. So we're really working, and the website is I am uh, the the letter I, the letter M, the number four, the letter U, Iamforyoulearning.com. Iamforyoulearning.com. I am for you, yeah, or Jim jimmare.com is the easiest way to find anything I do. That's extremely exciting, man, and, and I think a lot of bass players are, a lot of them because of business necessity but we all do different stuff not not like just playing bass isn't enough but but uh, watching your kid stuff and and seeing how your stage persona that we talked about earlier uh, that is so fun and silly and and don't take yourself seriously and definitely break a sweat how you've made that count for something more serious mm. you know yeah uh, that's just a lot of fun we could go on for hours, obviously, and we normally do. <laughs> right. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being the inaugural guest of the, uh, the Lowdown Society podcast, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. In the next episode, I'll be talking to Mr. Amos Heller, a gentleman and a scholar, and also the bass player for Miss Taylor Swift. Until next time, stay funky, stay low, and I'll see you right back here at the Lowdown Society podcast.